based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election, and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week that more than any in memory braided together rich strands of law and politics. Two weeks after the midterms, the Republicans finally secured an edge in the House, far thinner than they hoped or anticipated, but likely enough to trigger the MAGA-led reign of terror on the administration. Just after gaining the advantage, the House Republicans announced an agenda of investigations of the administration, starting with the tired sideshow of Hunter Biden's laptop. And it looked as if Kevin McCarthy, if he can even become the new speaker, would have neither the spine nor the leverage to push back against the nutwing demands of Marjorie Taylor Greene and company. Meanwhile, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi announced that she is stepping down, ending arguably the most successful House Party leadership in history. And the Democratic torch will pass to a new generation of representatives, beginning with Hakeem Jeffries. To the barely concealed horror of many Republicans and conservative publications, Donald Trump made the much-anticipated declaration that he is a candidate for president in 2024. His oddly low-energy rambling speech avoided rehearsing the big lie, but there seemed no doubt that his candidacy will visit more confusion, bitterness, and dangerous passions on a country that has suffered with more of the same since he first became a candidate. Capping off the explosive week, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced, in apparent response to Trump's candidacy, the appointment of a special counsel to oversee both the Mar-a-Lago case and the January 6th criminal investigations that involved the former president. His choice of an experienced state, federal, and international prosecutor named Jack Smith was designed to reassure the country that the investigations will be entirely removed from politics. Though predictably, Trump and other Republicans immediately attacked the appointment as further indication of corruption in the Justice Department. To assess this rich and sour brew of legal riddles and political turbulence, I'm delighted to welcome three of the country's wisest observers of Washington and the national political scene. And they are Norm Ornstein, an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, co-host of AI's Election Watch, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, co-host of the podcast Words Matter with Kavita Patel. It's a great one, by the way, and a prolific author. And they always have to tag you with the norm, but it's true. Been named one of the top 100 global thinkers for diagnosing America's political dysfunction, which you've done frequently now, I'm so pleased to say, on Talking Feds itself. Thanks very much for joining us on a crazy and momentous week. My pleasure, Harry. Senator Barbara Boxer, a former U.S. congressman and senator from California. She served in Congress from 1983 to 2017 and formed a reputation as one of Congress's most stalwart and principled liberals. Before her work in Congress, the senator served on the Marin County Board of Supervisors and became the first woman president of the board. Her memoir, The Art of Tough, Fearlessly Facing Politics and Life was published in 2016. I'm really pleased to say this is far from her first, maybe fourth or fifth uh, visit to Talking Feds. Thanks so much for joining us on our really big week. Well, I always love to be on your show because you get right to the heart of stuff and we don't fool around. We just get right to the heart of it. (laughs) (laughs) And Michael Steele. 
a political analyst for MSNBC, host of the Michael Steele podcast, a member of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Board of Directors, has as many titles as Norm. But in 2003, Michael was elected Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, becoming the first African-American elected to statewide office and as most everyone knows, served as chair of the Republican National Committee from 2009 to 2011. He since became a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project after breaking ranks with Republican President Donald Trump and continues to work for a sane Republican Party of your and hopefully future. Michael, (laughs) thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, no, Harry, it's great to be with you. Good to connect, uh, reconnect with my buddy, Norm Ornstein. So, uh, look, it's, hey, it's a a one-two punch, baby. What can I say? (laughs) There you go. And as we were just saying before we joined, the old political divides, I think, have been replaced by a divide of former normal political world versus crazy world is kind of being even more significant than Democrat versus Republican. All right, so much to talk about. Let's take a little time to just assess the U.S. profile after the midterms. So sifting through the results, which were better than many people were anticipating for Democrats, it looks actually on sort of second look as if the polls maybe weren't so off and that it was a state-by-state dynamic where in blue states especially, abortion and democracy were on the ballot influencing both turnout and outcomes. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Well, I'll start. Not entirely, I would say, Harry. First, the polls are no longer anything we need to rely on heavily. They're in the middle of a big crisis. Response rates are down to trace elements. Pollsters now just have to try and slap together something that seems to resemble where the electorate is. And they were misleading the best ones even in a lot of ways, including dismissing the possibility that the Dobbs decision in abortion and the democracy issue were going to matter at all, that it was all about inflation and crime. The second thing to keep in mind is that reporters in mainstream media bought completely into what was a false narrative because a number of really bogus surveys, Trafalgar, Insider Advantage, Rasmussen, flooded the zone in the final month. And it was obvious to anybody who followed polling carefully, but apparently not obvious to 538.com and especially to realclearpolitics.com. And you know what we tend to use is to aggregate the surveys so that you don't get the noise from the individual ones, but it was a distorted reality. So it's true, as you say, that we had an election where the state results were dramatically different. We saw Florida move much more firmly into the red camp. We saw Ohio, Iowa show that didn't matter about the quality of the candidates. They were going to vote their tribal identities. Uh, But we also saw some very different results in states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Minnesota. We're growing more divided by state as we have grown divided by tribe. Michael, do you agree that that's the kind of dynamic we're in? And do you see anything on the horizon that could be changing that in the next few years? Well, I do think Norm nailed exactly the dynamic around polling and how that played itself out. The the inability of the technology to actually move to where voters are. I'm sorry, 18-year-olds just aren't sitting at home waiting, you know, next to their hard line for the phone to ring. That form and that way of gathering information is not effective. There are a number of variables that are at play here. The demographic variables with young voters and, and how they move about and how they gather and connect and relay information. The fact that voters lie. Voters have no hesitancy lying to pollsters now. In fact, it's an art form, certainly among some on the right where, you know, they think the mainstream media is out to get them anyway and it's going to distort. So they don't want to tell them that they're going to be um, supporting Trump or, or some MAGA Republican. So these are new elements and components that pollsters have to adapt to. And the firm or individuals 
And some individuals actually kind of figured out the sauce a little bit. Uh, one of them is a Democratic pollster who I've uh, had the pleasure of working with over the last few months, and that's Simon Rosenberg, who basically in the summer, and I agreed with him because I went on MSNBC and said on air that what I'm seeing tells me that the Democrats could actually hold the House in November. And um, he was saying the same thing, and I connected with him, and lo and behold, effectively, but for <laughs> two seats, literally, this is what it looks like it's going to be. So the landscape politically has changed. As the good senator knows, the way members act and behave with one another has changed. That has also been a dynamic for voters to take a cue from. Because in the past, when you had you know a Connie Morella and a Senator Boxer talking to their constituents, about one another. It wasn't, you know, that SOB, you know, standing there with a sawed off shotgun talking about I'm going to go, you know. So voters key off of that and it changes the way they approach the politics that we want to engage in. And I think to the back end of Norm's uh, point, how that changes, it's going to require a, a real test of leaders right now. It's really going to require those men and women whether in this incoming class or some future class that says enough is enough. This is not how we govern ourselves. This is not how we lead a country. And this is not how we remain free as citizens of the U.S. It's not a great surprise that we're still divided. But I'll tell you what I took away from the election that gives me heart. And that is the amazing turnout in the tough races by young people. And they went 28 points for Democratic candidates. It turns out they like control over their own bodies. They don't like hiding under the desk from gun violence. They like the fact that we've had a lot of job growth and they don't like insurrections and they don't like crazy. And so to me, that's the hope. I always look at the public. One of the things my friend Nancy Pelosi always says is, uh, she quotes Lincoln who said, public sentiment is everything. And so if you look at this and you see the young people and you see there's no ambiguity here, there's no split here among older people. Yes. So this gives me the greatest hope. All right. So let's try to zero in. On the one hand, you have a reaffirmation of a very polarized electorate. On the other, on the knife's edge, teeny changes have momentous implications and that brings us, of course, to the fact that the Republicans will be in control of the House by a sliver, much less than they might have thought, but majority status brings quite a lot with it. How does the narrow majority, the fact that it's 221 rather than 240, influence the growing MAGA contingent, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and others who are putting pressure on the putative speaker. Does that in any way constrain their ability to make trouble over the next couple of years as you see it? Oh, they're going to make trouble. Um, <laughs> don't kid yourself. It doesn't matter if they had a half a person majority. Look, I served in the House for 10 years. It is such a fun place to be. Seriously, the Senate it's a little more dignified. It's a little more friendly. It's a lot more friendly. As a matter of fact, Jim Inhofe retired, and I was so thrilled to see he mentioned me, how well we got along. We always found a sweet spot. Two people could not be more different. We found a sweet spot on infrastructure. We wrote five highway bills, blah, blah. But the House is a different thing. There's... um you know, a lot of passion. And you were in the House for a long time before in the Senate, I yeah, should mention. 10 years, right. ten years yeah. yeah. I was there in 83, Nancy Pelosi, my sister, came in 87. So here's what I predict. I could be so wrong, but I think it's going to be a mess. How do I know that? I already know it. And I think our two incredible guests here who were so good on this, you know, the technicalities of ads and what they say and what they mean and how they impact the ads the Republicans ran, at least in my congressional race, which was tight, and my guy lost it by maybe a hair, the ads were inflation is terrible, gas prices are terrible, immigration is terrible. What else was terrible? Everything was terrible. And elect us, and we're going to fix it. It's going to be great. So the first thing they do is say they're going after Hunter Biden and his laptop. Right. This thing is ridiculous. 
I feel bad for the Republicans who voted for them. Most Republicans, in my view, and independent voters, they're struggling with certain things. They got to work together. I don't see it. And I think McCarthy is going to be at the mercy of the Trump folks. You know, Michael would know a lot more about that than I, because I'm a lifelong Democrat. He was a Republican. But I just see a disaster unfolding. It's awful for the American people. And Democrats, I think, will take back the House because they're going to do nothing. Norm, you know, you've got four or five, however you can, you know, moderate Republicans. Can they, with Democrats, kind of coalesce to bring real countervailing pressure against the MAGA crowd? Or is it just going to be, you know, straight Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan telling McCarthy what to do? Well, first, Harry, there are no moderate Republicans. You could say there are four or five (laughs) normal people. Um, (laughs) But the idea that these normal people, some of whom ran by saying we're going to try and restore bipartisanship, imagine the first time you have a vote and they're the only ones out there voting no, and Tucker Carlson goes after them and puts their phone numbers and addresses up on the screen, and they're getting death threats, and they're shunned by their friends. Uh, and their colleagues, they're not going to do it. I mean, you know, I, I've characterized the House Republicans as uh, consisting largely, with a couple of exceptions, of two groups, fanatics and cowards. And that's basically where we are. Now, hold your uh, fire a little bit on Kevin McCarthy for this reason. We already have three of those radical right. Republicans who said they will not vote for him on the floor. We don't know exactly what the margin will be. It might be 220, 221. It might be 222. But they can't lose more than five. And we already know that there are some others like Paul Gosar who haven't said anything yet. So Kevin McCarthy is not quite there. But let's say he gets there. I've characterized it as a guy who is on a short leash with a choke collar and an electronic fence. (laughs) (laughs) So he has no leeway. He is completely in thrall of the Marjorie Taylor Greene faction there. He will do nothing that uh, they disapprove of. And they've made it clear because they're going to change the rules so they can oust him in a nanosecond. Now, it would be maybe a little bit different if he had any spine. He has no spine. I've been around for 53 years around the house. I've seen leaders come and go. I know a lot about the history of leaders. I've never seen a weaker or more pathetic leader than Kevin McCarthy. And he is going to be at their mercy. Now, having said that, we may take some joy in seeing all of that happen. But think of the chaos that we will have here. And I'm getting increasingly worried. I wrote a piece a few weeks ago that if they won the house, Beware, especially of a debt limit crisis and a default. And I've tried for two years to get the House and Senate Democrats to get rid of this issue, to pass the McConnell rule, which is that uh, the Treasury Secretary acting on behalf of the president can unilaterally raise the debt ceiling, and then Congress can pass a joint resolution blocking it, but he can veto that. And all he needs is one third of a House plus one. They haven't done it. And the sense that I've had in talking to some of the Senate Democrats this week is I don't think they fully grasp the gravity of this situation. We came close to a default in 2011. Our credit rating was downgraded. It cost taxpayers at least $18 billion when we didn't go over the cliff, but we came close to the edge. And you have definitely the MAGA crowd being very willing to do it. We're looking at a real crisis if they say we're going to play chicken with the full faith and credit of the U.S. And shutting down the government, cutting off funding for the Justice Department, the Department of Homeland Security, the CDC. Ukraine, uh, Ukraine, Not to mention Ukraine and impeaching Mayorkas, Garland and others. You know, it's going to be a shit show. And, you know, uh, there may be a reaction against it and a backlash. And Barbara uh, may be right that they'll give it back to the Democrats. And You know, it's also a possibility since so many of these newcomers are anti-vaxxers that they'll lose the majority in the middle of the term. Yeah, all but three of the newcomers are election deniers. So (laughs) so let me go to you, Mr. Former. 
RNC chair, you know, there would have yeah. been a time when your voice would have been very important here. I mean, Norman and the senator both suggest that, A, it's inevitable, but B, it could be political, if not suicide, you know, a problem for 2024. Just from straight Machiavellian politics, how do you see Hunter Biden's laptop and flirting with the full faith and credit of the U.S.? How do you see that agenda playing out? It's going to be red meat. To Norm's point, if they don't do that, you're going to have rank and file Republicans outside of Congress calling for McCarthy's head, uh, let alone what you'll hear from, you know, the wingnuts inside the room. So McCarthy's in a no-win situation. On January 3rd, when he assumes the gavel, he will in that moment become the weakest, probably the least competent Speaker of the House that we will have had in our lifetime. And when you stack him up, I'll put this bet in right now, you'll stack up his two years as Speaker against Nancy's first two years as Speaker, let alone what she's done subsequently. And my point will be made. You will now have stories out, Harry, already comparing to Senator Boxer's point, McCarthy's leadership to Nancy Pelosi, how Nancy was able to put in place her successors, not just her own, but across the board, right? There was no palace intrigue. There were no coups. There were no Democrats or, or progressives huddling in the corners of the hall, scheming to overthrow the effort. None of that. She announces her stepping down from power and handing the torch off to the next generation in a way that America looks at that and goes, oh, so that's how that's done. Right. George Washington <laughs> style. Right. Oh, look, I did. Do you really you can do it that way? Because remember, <laughs> except for her taking over the gavel the last time, Republicans have basically outed three Speakers of the House. We've gotten rid of Gingrich, we've gotten rid of Boehner, and we've gotten rid of Paul Ryan right during their terms. So you, you have these two very, I think, compelling storylines that the country is going to be able to watch unfold real time under uh, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries and Speaker of the House McCarthy and Majority Leader Scalise. And so the reality is going to be one where the Republicans are going to continue to play to a very narrow sliver of their base. And they're going to feed them Hunter Biden. They're going to feed them Merrick Garland. They're going to feed them Dr. Fauci. They're going to feed them investigation after investigation after investigation. There are going to be titillations about what's on the laptop. Meanwhile, inflation, overall economic recovery and moving forward. Ukraine, our relationship with China, the Democrats are going to be in a position to narratively speak to those issues. So they're going to be governing from a minority position in the House and a majority position in the Senate and the White House, which gives them a really nice bully bullpit. And the Republicans, instead of leaning into how we want to address inflation, how we want to deal with gas prices, et cetera, are going to be dealing with the titillating aspects of personal politics of destruction for the purposes of setting up Donald Trump. Oh, did I mention Donald Trump's running for president? <laughs> mm, I was, you know, I heard that and I was going to get to it. And by the <laughs> way, I just want to put in one name here in addition, Jim Jordan at Judiciary, who, you know, is basically untrammeled. Michael, you started me thinking about something when you said the bully pulpit the Democrats will have. I certainly hope they will not take a page out of the Republican playbook and stay off these investigations committees. Right. They should be there and they should say exactly what you said. The Republicans said they were very upset about this, that, and the other, inflation, immigration, and look what we're doing. And just, I think it's another moment. I don't know this, but knowing Democrats as I do, we're not going to give up the chance because I've sat in on many of those things as a minority when Republicans were going after people that I thought were honorable people. Um, and I don't think they'll make that mistake that uh, the Republicans made. They'll they'll stay there and they'll outshine them 
I mean, can you imagine some of the stars we all met on some of these committees, these incredible people, men and women, people like Zoe Lafkin and Jamie Raskin and all these people, they're so smart and calm. And they'll be on those committees. And I think people are going to go, oh, my God, I wish my cousin Jenny had voted. Let me make a caveat here. They're going to bounce some of these people from the committees. Remember when Democrats took Marjorie Taylor Greene off her committees, which was deserved. Kevin McCarthy is going to try and get exact revenge. And that means that Eric Swalwell and uh, Adam Schiff and Jamie Raskin may not be on those committees. But I would just add one other thing that they need to do, Barbara, and that is to hammer away at the press, which is inclined to treat bogus investigations as the same as real investigations and to both sides, all of this. And we cannot let that happen when they're going after things that are utterly illegitimate. It's so true. Last thing I want to say about that, you're so smart to remind me that that's what they'll probably do, kick these great people off. But there are other things we used to do when we were in the minority in the House. And that is we'd set up like a parallel committee and we'd meet and we'd go, they kicked seven of us off, but guess what? We're following this and this is what we want to say. Whether the press covers it, we don't know. But you're so right about some of the press sometimes, you know, that, oh, Republicans are doing this, the same thing the Democrats did. It's ridiculous. It's it's couldn't be more different. Yeah, I think that's a very important point that overarches all of this. All of the political machinations and shenanigans and efforts to actually get good policy done. Uh, there are members uh, on both sides that do try to do that from time to time. The press is always looking for the TikTok. They're always looking for that moment, that 30 seconds that they can show someone showing their behind, acting stupid, saying something even dumber, and then creating, to Norm's point, this parallel universe as if all that bad behavior, those bad words are the same as all the good stuff that's out here trying to be done or the legitimate efforts to uncover what happened on January 6th, et cetera. So I think... I think there's going to be a real effort. There has to be a real effort uh, to hold the press accountable for how they cover the news. This is not a game. This is not a playground. This is not where you get to, you know, rack up points. This is about democracy and how it functions. And of all the institutions that are mentioned, the press is the only one that's mentioned in the Constitution itself. So they have a higher order of duty than any of us to make sure that this thing sticks together because the moment they start playing that whataboutism or treating these sham investigations by Jim Jordan as legitimate investigations by the January 6th committee, then the press has ill-served its role and should uh, be held accountable for that. And I think they're really thinking in those terms. You saw it with Trump's announcement where the press at least was, you know, leading off. I'm sure it drove him to distraction with, you know, the twice impeached president, et cetera. Talk about a complicating factor. It is time now for our sidebar feature in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important legal concept in the news. The concept today is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, a perennial topic on Capitol Hill and around the country, all the more relevant in light of the current turmoil at Twitter. It's the section that permits providers such as Google and Twitter to be treated as publishers and not to be liable for the potential defamatory communications of the actual users. Very controversial, and uh, many people, including Senator Klobuchar, are always looking to potentially revise it in light of perceived abuses by the providers. So, Section 230, and to explain it to us, I'm so pleased to introduce Jeremy Lin. Jeremy Lin is now a professional basketball player for the Guangzhou Long Lions of the Chinese Basketball Association. But of course, he is renowned forever for 
his amazing 2011-2012 season with the New York Knicks. When he came off the bench, I think he was the number 10 of 11 players. He was sleeping on his brother's couch at the time because it was all so provisional. And all of a sudden lit the league on fire over a course of a couple weeks that generated the cultural meme, Lynn Sanity. Jeremy has graced the covers of Sports Illustrated and Time, which also named him one of their top 100 most influential people in the world. In 2012, Jeremy was awarded the ESPY Award for Breakthrough Athlete of the Year. So I give you Jeremy Lynn on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. What is Section 230 and why all the hubbub around it? As the internet took off in the 90s, Congress passed the Communications Decency Act of 1996. Let's call it the CDA. Congress enacted the CDA to protect minors from the over-accessibility of what it deemed obscene and offensive material on the web. In 1997, the Supreme Court struck down most of the CDA in Reno v. ACLU, concluding that the act's purpose conflicted with the First Amendment's free speech protections. Section 230 of the CDA is now all that remains of the act after Reno versus ACLU. Two features are important. First, Section 230 grants immunity to web-based companies from liability for defamation, invasion of privacy, and virtually any other lawsuit that arises from user-provided content. Essentially, with a few exceptions, a web-based company will not be found liable for third-party content, even if the content is heavily manipulated. Courts have restricted this view a bit over the years, finding that when a provider plays more than a mere publisher's role by, for example, soliciting or aiding in content development, the provider loses out on Section 230's blanket immunity. Second, Section 230 allows these companies to actively moderate and restrict users' content as they wish, rather than subjecting it to explicit government oversight. Probably the most familiar example is Twitter banning Trump. The platform cited Section 230 in defense of its decision to remove the former president's accounts and tweets. Another example is Airbnb dodging local housing ordinances by claiming Section 230 protection as merely the publisher of the third-party content of individual homeowners. Both Democrats and Republicans have criticized Section 230 and made calls to change the law or scrap it altogether. Some prominent Democrats view the law as an overly generous gift to big tech and seek to increase tools for restricting harmful content on sites that are populated with user uploads like Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. There have been numerous proposals to reform or repeal Section 230, and the debate is certain to continue given the Internet's breathtaking influence on modern society, and given the very few companies such as Facebook, Google, and Twitter that exercise broad control. For Talking Feds, I'm Jeremy Lin. Thank you, Jeremy Lin, for explaining Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to us. You can see Jeremy in the just-released documentary, 38 at the Garden on HBO Max. 38 at the Garden explores Jeremy's extraordinary and explosive rise to NBA stardom during what's now 10 years ago, his landmark 2011-2012 season with the Knicks as point guard and the lasting impact of Lynn's sanity. So check it out, 38 at the Garden on HBO Max. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. Oven baked turkey or fried, pumpkin pie or pecan? All great questions, but in today's spirited debate, we gather together to decide which wine is best for your Thanksgiving meal. Red or white? Now it's no easy task pairing a wine that complements the variety of dishes on your table. There's the savory potatoes and gravy, the sweet corn and sugary yams, and then there's the tart cranberry sauce and tangy green beans. It's a mouthful of flavor to say the least. So with all that going on, there's only one right answer. Both. Serving red and white at the table is the perfect way to balance the meal properly. And even better news is that Total Wine & More has a huge selection of each. Let's start with the white wine where I recommend the Rieslings. They're light, refreshing, and crisp, so that they can cut through the richness of mashed potatoes, yet they're mild enough not to overpower the turkey. For red, I looked at Pinot Noir. 
It's the classic Thanksgiving wine and is welcomed at the table as the turkey itself. Pinot Noirs are light to medium body red, served best lightly chilled, and its red fruit notes are the perfect complement to the fall dishes served at Thanksgiving. And of course, there's always the third option, rosé. It's crisp and refreshing to help offset the savory sides, but it's also a great option to sip on while preparing the meal itself. Pop into Total Wine and More and grab a bottle of each. Maybe the new saying should be rosé all Thanksgiving day. Now that's something to sip on. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. On the one hand, the press mocked him. It looks as if his hand-picked candidates lost 5%. We'll see what's going to happen in Georgia and all the Republican real faithful say, stay the heck away from here or you're really going to hurt Herschel. That's all on the one hand. On the other, it's been some time since he's actually been a winning presence on the national scene. What he's been is this interim presence with his feverish and rabid base and the you know incredible influence he can have over the party with being able to command that you know 30, 40 percent, whatever you might say. So there's this feel out there that his his influence is waning. But does the fact that he still is able to sort of get a big segment of the electorate really revved up mean that he is just as dangerous and just as sort of pernicious for the country over the next two years as he's been in the previous two? I'll just I'll jump real quick. The the bottom line is. Donald Trump is a continuing clear and present danger. Yeah. And if you do not start from that position, then failure is the only option in terms of how you think this is going to turn out. So point one. Point two, what makes that more difficult and much more challenging is that as we've already begun to see, and I've seen it for some time inside the party, this has now gone beyond Trump. So Trump is no longer necessary as a physical characterization of Trumpism, right? We need Donald Trump physically to be at a podium. You now have seen just what the next iteration of Trumpism looks like in two incredibly important states. I give you the governor of Florida, and I give you the race that we just saw in Arizona with Carrie Lake. Polished, poised glossy, hair appropriately coiffed, sounds so smart and intelligent, dangerous as hell. The woman has yet to concede in a race that she has clearly lost. She's down in Mar-a-Lago now. Why? Well, who knows? But we do know, right? Continuing that cabal, what is the next step we're going to see play out here? So, We need to understand exactly what the next 24 months, 36 months are going to look and feel like for this country. We have not cleaned ourselves of this dangerous uh, virus yet. We need to find the, the resource within ourselves, as we did in this last election, to vote them out, don't vote them in, and to the extent that we can, tag them, flag them, and get them the next time, uh, because it, it doesn't end just because Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot in in 22, likely will be in 24, and yeah, a lot of the MAGA folks lost, but a lot won as well. You know, Michael, I was going to say he's very dangerous as long as he's talking, and I was hoping when you jumped in that you would tell us. He's not that dangerous. <laughs> you know, I was like, please, God. <laughs> but, you know, here's the thing that Michael says. There's Trump and there's Trumpism. And, you know, you've got DeSantis. I think his wife did this commercial that he's he was sent to us by God on yes. this day, which I think is blasphemy, to be honest. Yeah. Yep. And, and I think they're getting away with it. It's ridiculous. But he's Trump in those white boots. You know, we can remember him in those white boots. But I have to say, I think Trump, who is such a narcissist, we talk a lot about politics. We know a lot about politics. We don't know that much about psychiatry or psychology. And there have been books written about Donald Trump. The man is a clinical narcissist. 
he cannot survive unless it's like, look at me. Yeah. Now, look, I grew up in that atmosphere of politicians and it's all look at me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not holier than thou, but it's not a sick thing. He's sick. And one of the things he said, I listened to part of the speech until they cut away. Yeah, even Fox News cut away, right? Yeah, yeah right. right. He, said, he said this, I know you are angry. He said those words. It sent sh- shivers through my spine. Because what is the outcome of being angry? What comes to mind? The insurrection, the angry, the hate, you know, yeah, because I lived in that temple of democracy for a long time, and that just sticks with me. So just to close it out, my view, I think he is dangerous. The people around him are dangerous. There's Trump. There's Trumpism. This Carrie Lake character is very, very frightening. In a way, the fact that she's acting like this, I think, is a good thing for the country to see, because even people as far right, and if I can say with fascist qualities, like Mastriano conceded, others conceded. So in a way, that's a good thing. I predict he's going to run Trump as an independent if he doesn't win the nomination because he can't help himself. And, you know, that's a whole other kettle of fish. It's going to help Democrats, but it's crazy stuff. We're still in crazy land. I agree with Michael. Let me stick with the politics for on this for a second. So everything the senator says is right. And on the one hand, it was there was much less election denialism. Even Lake, I thought, seemed a little more isolated, less sort of daunting. But at the end of the day, Trump does not augur, you know, an electoral victory, but rather somewhere underneath it all, a kind of violence. The thing is, as each of these books come out, we learn more and more everybody in the Republican Party, I think, kind of loathed him and was onto him from the start, and yet they all fell into line. And you now have this dynamic where, you know, it may be that the Republican elders, if they could choose, would be very happy if he just kind of vaporized. But how does it work, do you think, politically, I put this to you, political sages, because he's now announced he does have this lead on DeSantis. He's very dangerous one-on-one in the field. How politically does it work so when you get to the finish line at the convention in 2024, someone other than Trump gets the nomination? So let's have a caveat here first. He will soon be indicted. And I think We may end up talking a little bit about the uh, special counsel, uh, Jack Smith, people I trust are very high on. He will be indicted by Fannie Willis in Georgia. In New York, I think he is on the verge of losing his uh, Trump organization. And it's quite possible now that we uh, appear to be heading towards having a legitimate head of the IRS instead of the Trump crony Charles Reddick, who would do nothing very possibly having a huge tax bill and a tax bill in New York. He is going to be distracted by a whole lot of other things along the way. But the giant caveat here about Trump and the Republican Party is you're absolutely right, Harry, that if the elites in the party could snap their fingers and have him disappear from the face of the earth, they would do so in a nanosecond. But they also felt that way in 2015 and 2016. And it didn't matter to that base. Right. The base, at least a sizable portion of it, is still with him, and a lot of them will stick with him, and that creates a big dilemma for Republicans. Now, I believe that Ron DeSantis is America's Victor Orban, wants to turn the country into a state like Hungary, which means we lose our democracy. But I also watched the debate that he did with Charlie Crist, and he was a disaster. And I think he is not ready for that broader uh, prime time. I'm actually a little bit more frightened about Glenn Youngkin, who mm-hmm. looks to be more reasonable, but is a Trumpist through and through. And frankly, when I watched his reactions to the murders of these three fine young men at the University yeah. of Virginia, it gave me chills. This was not a man with an ounce of empathy, whether he wears a fleece vest or not. And who knows what other pretenders there will be out there. A a Republican civil war would be great. I'd be perfectly thrilled if he ran with Carrie Lake as his running mate as an independent uh, to take some of these dangers away from us. But we don't know where all of this is heading. Anybody who thinks that Trump is gone 
is wrong. But whatever happens to Trump, as Barbara said, Trumpism will remain alive and well for some time. We're not eradicating the pernicious elements that are there or the reality that two thirds to three fourths of the Republicans in the House are election deniers, which means they more broadly are radical. We've got big problems on our hands. What do you think about uh, the special counsel, Jack Smith? Does it in any way, practically speaking, head off the accusations, not just from the base, but from the Republicans themselves and the Jim Jordans of the world that it's all, you know, political hack job within DOJ? I think it's the right move. Boy, do I. And I've got a lot of friends who are writing, oh, why did he do this? And blah, 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 blah. You know, look, I lived through so many special counsel investigations and it's the right thing to do when so much politics surrounds this. So I'm very supportive of, of this. I think it's the right thing to do. And if I'm Trump, I'm scared like crazy because it says that, you know, we're taking the politics out of this. So I think it was very smart. But can that actually happen, even if that's oh, what they're well, saying? Well, they won't accept it, but yeah, a rational person will say it takes the politics out of it. I mean, the guy called up and said, find me 11,700 and yada, yada, yada votes. And people are going, oh, that's okay. Imagine if I did that, or Michael, when right. you can, if yeah. you called up and said to the Secretary of State, you're, hey, uh, I want to be a senator, and I, I, I'm sure that if I could just get, you know, 24,000 votes, can't you find, this thing is not so. Michael, thoughts about the special counsel? Yeah, I actually have mixed mixed thoughts about it. Part of my brain was, you know, I, I think this is something that the DOJ should press through on that uh, Merrick Garland should press through on. But I get it. It actually makes sense now to me. And it made sense when he announced who the special counsel was. Jack Smith is someone, I mean, this guy is in The Hague. He is about as far removed from American politics right now as the moon. <laughs> you can't swing at him and go, well, he's a partisan hack. He's this, he was that kind of Republican. He was appointed by this Democrat or he was appointed by that Republican in other jobs, his service, his work and his efforts judicially uh, in, in that space has been some very important, very politically sensitive matters. And I, and I think he brings a level of credibility that, uh, quite honestly, Mueller didn't bring. Not that Mueller was incredible. He was. But it was easier to pull Mueller into the political muck. I think it'll be harder to do that with this special counsel. He's going to come in and oversee and take basically take over this and and direct it to its conclusion. And this was important in what the attorney general said to bring it to its conclusion. So I think to Norm's earlier point, there are indictments coming and I think they want it done in a way that there aren't political fingerprints all over it. Right. I mean, Trump's already come out today after this announcement saying, well, I, I see no reason for me to cooperate with the special counsel. Well, guess what, baby? You don't have that choice. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point. You don't have that choice. So it's a whole different level of ball game right now for Trump. And he's going to use that in against this other end, which is running for the presidency. And he's going to try to ping pong off of that to stay relevant in the game, to be the victim uh, as a consequence of the overreach of Biden's Justice Department. And at the same time, have his followers tear at, claw at uh, the special counsel and the DOJ, uh, Georgia and New York, as much as they possibly can as these indictments are set to come. Well put. All right, man, we could go for 20 hours on just this stuff alone, but we are out of time for our uh, final feature of Talking Five. I just wanted to change uh, direction a little and serve it up for a five-word summary of uh, the question is, what will be Nancy Pelosi's legacy? Hard to say in five words, but maybe trying to condense it will say a lot. I'll go first real quick, having gone head to head against Nancy in the 2010 cycle as chairman of the National Party. I can say it in less than five words, consequential leadership. She changed the game. I'll do five words. 
best speaker in history, Mensch. <laughs> that was Senator Scribbling. Yeah, go. Now I'm scribbling it down, making sure it's in the in the word limit. Greatest of all times. Yeah. G-O-A-T. All right. Prudence, judgment, leadership, metal, calm. Mm. We are out of time, I'm very sorry to say, because we could go another five hours here. But thank you so much to Michael Norm and Senator Boxer. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. And tonight, Monday, November 21st, we'll be hosting our monthly Q&A with me live on Zoom for Patreon subscribers. Be sure to sign up if you'd like to join that. It's also a great way to support the show if you feel so inclined. Also, if you submit a question that we use on Q&A, you'll get some Talking Feds swag, either a mug or a tote bag to dazzle your friends. Submit your questions to TalkingFeds.com slash contact, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments, or as I said, for our monthly Q&A, which is tonight, Monday, November 21st. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Thanks very much to Jeremy Lin of Linsanity fame for explaining Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass who graciously lets us use his beautiful music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>